Hello and welcome to Empowering Minds, the Brussels-based podcast from Mental Health Europe. In our podcast series, we discuss all things related to mental health. My name is Jonas Ball. I am a research and policy officer with Mental Health Europe and I am your host today. When we experience mental health problems and seek help from a doctor, psychiatrist or other health professionals, sometimes we receive and are given a diagnosis. This has important consequences, both positive and negative. In today's episode, we will try to approach and unpack the large topic of psychiatric diagnoses and labeling. Today, you will hear from three great speakers how diagnoses and diagnostic manuals were established over time, how the COVID pandemic relates to the way we think about mental health, and where we can observe drivers for change. But most importantly, we will hear from people with lived experience having received a psychiatric diagnosis in their lives and how they think about questions of labels and the power dynamics around psychiatry today. On our MHE platform, you can also find further information, such as the short guide to psychiatric diagnoses, but we have also included some links to articles authored by today's speakers. You can find them on www.mhe-sme.org and then search for our podcast series. Our first guest today is Lucy Johnston. Dr. Lucy Johnston is a consultant clinical psychologist, author of Users and Abusers of Psychiatry and co-editor of Formulation in Psychology and Psychotherapy Making Sense of People's Problems. She has worked in adult mental health settings for many years, most recently in a service in South Wales. She was lead author along with Professor Mary Boyle, for the Power Threat Meaning Framework, a division of clinical psychology-funded project to outline a conceptual alternative to psychiatric diagnoses. Could you maybe explain to us briefly how um, were psychiatric diagnoses established, um, particularly taking into account also the um, the manuals as we know them today? Okay, so this is an important question because it's really the absolute foundation of mental health practice as we know it today. Because interestingly, it's relatively recently that we started thinking that people's very real experiences of distress needed to be labelled as medical illnesses or disorders. And this kind of happened around about the end of the 19th century when we started to think, well, maybe this is really where we need to have diagnostic labels and doctors need to be the central profession involved. So around the 1900s, we had about kind of three labels, which were called things that sound very old fashioned now, melancholia and so on. But since then, we've developed gradually over the years a, a much larger, more complex system of diagnostic labelling. And it comes in two versions, essentially. One is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. 
and it's drawn up in America, but it's used worldwide. And the first edition came out in 1952 that had about 106 so-called disorders. And every so often there are revised and updated editions. So the most recent one was DSM-5 in 2013. And more or less in parallel, we have the International Classification of Diseases, ICD, which has one chapter which is devoted to what are called psychiatric disorders. And they have some minor differences between them, but really it doesn't, those are kind of not the important issue because they're based on the same set of principles and ideas and assumptions that really we're trying to divide up the experience of distress into different types of medical illnesses or disorders. Mm -hmm. ICD also has regular revisions, so we're now up to ICD-11. And lots of doctors and psychiatrists and mental health professionals will say, well, I don't go rushing to ICD and DSM every two minutes to see what label I should give to someone. But the existence of these manuals is very, very important because they are the kind of building block of psychiatry and as a branch of medicine of the whole of the mental health system. If you took away a diagnosis, everything else would come under question, like are these really illnesses? Do psychiatric drugs need to play such a large role? Should nurses and doctors be the predominant profession? Are hospitals and clinics the best places to so-called treat people? Or do we actually need to think about these very real experiences of distress in a very different way? So you can't underestimate the importance of these manuals. Right. Thank you very much. Um, you mentioned that both the ICD and the DSM have been undergoing several revisions. So now we have the ICD-11, we have the DSM-5 um, from, I think, 2013. Um, could you explain to us maybe why do the manuals keep changing? Why are they being revised? Well, I mean, I, all diagnostic manuals need revising, you know, we learn more about diagnoses of physical health problems by you know, undertaking medical research and then diagnoses change the way we diagnose certain things like, you know, diabetes or Down syndrome or whatever has evolved over the years. Mm -hmm. So I suppose you, one way of saying that is, well, diagnoses need updating in the light of new knowledge. But from another perspective, um, you could say, well, actually something very different is going on when we're revising these manuals because we're not revising them on the basis of new medical knowledge. Mm -hmm. And it's important to be clear what kind of diagnosis I'm talking about here. So there are some things in DSM and ICD. There's, it's, it's got a huge rag bag of conditions in it, basically. There are some things like Alzheimer's disease and some forms of intellectual disability that everybody would see as you, know, you can understand these as developmental disorders or brain diseases or whatever. But there's a whole area of things that are sometimes called functional psychiatric diagnoses. So they're things that form the bedrock of mental health practice, things that we call schizophrenia or bipolar disorder or major depressive disorder or anxiety disorders or personality disorders or paranoia. And it's those that keep being revised and updated and often added to so that we now have apparently over 400 ways in which you could be so-called disordered. Mm -hmm. 
actually what's happening in this kind of revision of diagnosis is a very different process um, because we do not have what are called signs in medicine. We do not have evidence about what's going on in the body to cause these so-called conditions. So in diabetes, we have quite a well-established pattern based on medical research about what goes wrong with the function of the pancreas and so on. We have ways of diagnosing it and confirming or disconfirming it. But essentially what psychiatric diagnoses nearly all them are based on is a judgment that the way someone's thinking or feeling or behaving is abnormal. You know, one of the results of that is we have very kind of unclear categories. They shift, they change, they overlap. There's actually no way of saying this is schizophrenia versus this is bipolar disorder, let's say. There's no way of confirming or disconfirming a diagnosis. And some people would say there's no way of validating it in the first place. So we're left with very loose, unsatisfactory, overlapping categories. And one way of looking at the constant revisions is we're trying to make these look more scientific and reliable. Reliable means people are likely to agree with them. So reliability is one test of a sound scientific system and in fact reliability in dsm and icd is incredibly low it's you know more or less a chance level for many so-called disorders and actually reliability is only one of the important criteria because scientific categories are also meant to be valid in other words they're meant to represent something in the real world so is there really such a thing as schizophrenia out there in the world that in some sense explains some people's forms of distress. Well, DSM and ICD don't even get as far as addressing that. Mm. One of the interesting things that's happened in recent years is that even the very senior people who end up, who draw up these manuals, who chair these DSM committees, are saying things like, you know, quite devastating things. Um, DSM-5 will radically and recklessly expand the boundaries of psychiatry. The science simply isn't there. DSM is totally wrong, an absolute scientific nightmare. Those are actual quotes from senior establishment psychiatrists. Mm -hmm. So the interesting thing that's happening nowadays, which is not widely acknowledged or known about, and certainly the implications are rarely talked about, is that there is a massive amount of money and research being poured into developing a new diagnostic system from scratch because the people who make the criticisms are not against diagnosis as such, but they're saying, in a way, they're admitting this one really doesn't work, and we'll get another one along in a decade or two, and that will be better. Mm. Well, to me, that's an article of faith, and there's no particular reason to believe that mm -hmm. something that comes along in a decade or two will be better. To me, it's a sign we're proceeding on the wrong assumptions or the wrong principles. So that's a kind of one perspective on why we've tried to kind of shore up and make more sound and valid and plausible this particular system and we've reached the end of that particular pathway it doesn't seem to be working mm -hmm. i think one other question that i had what other ways have you experienced what other ways are there at the moment um, of how we could think and talk about experiences of a distress beyond um the way yeah psychiatry diagnoses are practiced and understood today okay that's a good question uh, because it's an interesting fact that in contrast to the complete lack of evidence for so-called chemical imbalances and 
genetic malfunctions and so on as causing so-called mental illnesses, there is a huge amount of evidence and a growing amount of evidence for the role of trauma, adversity, discrimination, social factors like poverty and social exclusion in the lives of people who end up feeling distressed. It's kind of common sense in a way. People with difficult lives are more likely to struggle emotionally and psychologically, but there's a growing amount of research to actually support that. So what is the alternative to diagnosis? I mean, in, in very simple terms, <coughs> the alternative to diagnosis is to listen to and understand people's stories, their personal stories, their life stories. As in the slogan, instead of asking what's wrong with me, ask what happened to me. And as a psychologist, I would say, and a lot of psychologists would agree with me, that however unusual or frightening or risky or eccentric or perhaps you know, overwhelming or long-standing someone's emotional and psychological difficulties are, there is always a way of understanding them. And it's not a quick or easy way very often, it really isn't. But that's what professionals are for, in my view, to help people put together a personal story. Now, sometimes people know about that already. You know, they know they had really difficult upbringings. They know they were traumatized and hurt, but that gets turned into a medical narrative. In the UK, there is quite a strong tradition, um, which I've done a lot of writing and teaching and training research into called formulation, which is just a jargon way of saying a semi-structured way of putting together someone's story. So a formulation is a kind of co-constructive narrative, if you like, and all psychologists in the UK and a growing number of other professionals use formulation. It's got quite a solid base in mental health services. So it's an evidence-based story, if you like. So it draws on the knowledge that we already have about the many psychosocial causes of people's distress. It adds in the evidence that the patient or service user brings about what happened to me, what I felt about it, how I reacted, how I'm coping. You put this together into a kind of personal narrative or a very individual hypothesis, if you like. This seems to explain perhaps the reasons I'm feeling so distressed. And that can provide a very personal plan for your, you know, whatever you may need to do, whatever support you may need to have in order to move forward in your life. So all of my practice, and this is true of all UK psychologists, has been formulation-based. Maybe because it's just so topical and it's just so mm. all-encompassing, maybe if you'd like to just comment on how maybe this pandemic also challenges a little bit the narrative that we have mm. been experiencing. Yeah. Yes, we're going through interesting times at the moment, aren't we? And um, the article I wrote was about all these headlines we're seeing about along with the COVID pandemic, we can expect or perhaps already experiencing a mental health epidemic or pandemic, whatever that is. So I think this whole COVID pandemic has highlighted some of these, I would say, very unhelpful and actually mistaken ways of thinking, because how much sense does it actually make to say, along with you know, a worldwide virus that's one of the biggest threats we've ever faced as a species and is closely linked to climate change and all the other things that are a threat to the whole planet, we unfortunately have another pandemic at the same time. What an unfortunate coincidence that is. And we've all got mental health problems. You know, seldom has it been more obvious that the things that we're all experiencing to some extent, being anxious and isolated and miserable and 
fearful are understandable responses to our circumstances. They're understandable response to the bigger threat. And actually the same research that's saying this is a mental health epidemic is identifying the, the reasons for people feeling more anxious or more miserable or more depressed than usual is because they're worried about their jobs. They're worried about getting ill. They're worried about their sick relatives. They are shut up in a isolated small flat. They are not sure how they're going to kind of run their family finances. They're worried about the future. So it was never more obvious that these are understandable responses to difficult circumstances. So I really hope this is an opportunity to challenge the mental health narrative. And I ended the article by saying we're not facing a mental, an epidemic of mental health problems, but we are facing an epidemic of mental health thinking. One of the good things that's happened much more over the last 20, 30, 40 years is the growing strength of the user survivor movement. And if change is going to happen, I think it's primarily going to happen through the user survivor movement, through people taking back their power, taking back ownership of their stories, deciding that this is not the kind of interventions they want in some cases, although I'm not saying everything that happens in mental health systems is unhelpful, it isn't. But I don't think the system itself is going to change very much. You know, radical changes need to always come from grassroots movements. And I think it's particularly important to think about that in relation to not just psychiatry in westernized societies, but in relation to the global mental health movement. And this is the movement to kind of export our diagnostic way of model across the globe to countries and cultures that don't have it as their dominant model and didn't know they needed it. Yeah. <laughs> and there's been some very good reports coming out of the UN about this by the special rapporteur saying, really, we need to think very carefully about we're, what we're exporting here. And some critical psychiatrists, of whom there are many, so this is not about psychiatrists per se, it's certainly not about psychiatrists versus psychologists, but critical psychiatrists like Suman Fernando have rightly, in my view, identified this as another form of colonialism. We are imposing a set of individualizing, Western-based, and actually even in their own terms, unscientific beliefs on cultures, which very often already have their own ways of experiencing, expressing, and healing distress, which are actually, research shows, um, often much more effective than ours. Because, you know, it's the, the little known, little acknowledged fact that Western psychiatry is much better at creating patients than curing them. So that's something, a movement really to be very aware of, to be very aware of the limitations of, and as a recent UN report put it, very succinctly and I think very accurately, we need to be thinking much less about chemical imbalances and much more about the power imbalances. Our next speaker is Leah Labaki, and I'm very excited to have her with us on this episode. In this talk, she will share a little bit more of her experiences having received psychiatric diagnoses in her life. Thank you very much for joining once again. And maybe to start with, um, could you tell us a little bit more about yourself? So uh, my name is uh, Lea Labaki, I'm from Belgium. And I identify as a person with a psychosocial disability and as a psychiatric survivor. And I also have a background in human rights. And so this has enabled me to 
to read my own psychiatric experiences through the lens of human rights and and become an advocate for the rights of people with psychosocial disabilities. What is your experience with diagnoses? And maybe to continue, what have been the consequences of being diagnosed? My very first psychiatric diagnosis was when I was 13. And I was diagnosed with anorexia because I stopped eating. And I really remember thinking that there must be some sort of misunderstanding because in my mind, what I was doing was more some kind of um, hunger strike, certainly not an illness. And so it didn't make sense to me why it was being discarded as a pathology and why I was being sent to hospital and given medication for that. So I really remember at first trying to to resist that label and then in the following years i was i was diagnosed with many other illnesses and disorders uh, kind of every psychiatrist has had their own theory so of course this was a bit confusing but also i think it was lucky in a way because i know other people have to deal with one big label being stuck on them that they have to fight. And this has not been my experience. These diagnoses have been quite easy to, to shake off one by one. But in my mind, these diagnoses were not even meant to, to help me really. I felt that it was more kind of justification for, um, for the coercion that I faced in the mental health system and for the general paternalism that I faced there really a kind of way of saying like this poor woman doesn't know what she's doing we need to protect her from herself so I think what's really important to understand is that a diagnosis is not a word like any other it's it has power when it's pronounced by the right person in the right context it has this power to sort of transform your status in society from regular citizen to a person whose rights can actually be limited uh, in some cases in the name of care of or protection and so this is why the a diagnosis is really central in uh, all the uh, laws allowing involuntary treatment or hospitalization or deprivation of legal capacity and this is also what happened to me because at different moments I have been either forced to go to hospital or forced to take medication or put in uh, isolation or restraints. And all this was made possible by the fact that I had a, a diagnosis. The diagnosis is what allowed doing things to me and to other people that are usually not allowed to do to anyone except maybe criminals. So this is really for me somehow the main consequence that happened to me with uh, being diagnosed as mentally ill. Thank you for sharing. Thank you. And based on your experience, what is it about mental health diagnoses then that needs change? So I think the main problem with the diagnostic system that we have is that it's based on this idea of illnesses and disorders and that's not a neutral 
accepting way of describing who you are or what how you react to life i mean the the idea of pathology there's no way it can be positive it's inherently negative it's something it means that you're wrong that it's an inadequate response and that's not how i experience things at all because i always knew that deep down what i was doing or saying that was seen as evidence of having a mental illness in fact it, it made sense like in the context of who i am and how i experience life it's in fact adequate to to react like this and anyone if if they had access to all these parameters uh, about me and my life then they would totally understand and they would actually think that i'm i'm right and so I think it's, it's an illusion to try and draw a line between those reactions of distress that are normal and acceptable and rational and those reactions of distress that are pathological and don't make sense. In fact, I think there's meaning in everyone's distress. And this has, of course, huge implications on, on how you try to address and treatment of health challenges. And do you think it is also possible for diagnoses to serve a positive purpose? Uh, yes, because, so actually it's going to sound maybe like a contradiction now, but at, at different points in my life, I have also been wanting a diagnosis and actively seeking one because I knew there was something different about me and I knew I faced challenges that most people did not face. And so I thought that finding the right diagnosis or the right term for this would allow me to, to identify it, but not as a way to fight it, but rather as a way to accept it or as a way to even befriend it, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And I know that for some people in some communities diagnosis have really played a positive role in terms of actually developing a positive identity around a diagnosis and this is what has been for them an, a, a tool for empowerment for pride for building a sense of community i know for example this is a case with the autistic community it's also kind of the concept of mad pride and so I don't think classifications per se are necessarily bad because we have to recognize that diversity exists. And in order to be counted and to count in a society that often refuses to listen to us, then we need to speak as a group and to regroup under some kind of label. But I think the problem is really when we start seeing these labels as a, a natural truth that cannot be questioned. And when we also don't question the implied values and hierarchies behind them. So I think what's really needed is to move from this illness and disorder model to a model around this idea of diversity, where mental health conditions, for lack of a better word, are not seen as pathology, but as just a way of reacting to life that's just as valid as any other way, which is not to say that it's not hard or that you don't need help, but just the way we understand this help is different because 
instead of being a, an object of medical care, we become a, a subject with rights, including a right to support and to accommodations that we need to have this fulfilling life and be included in society. So really, I think the first step is to, to stop giving this authority to psychiatric diagnosis to divide people between who's sound and who's faulty and to use them to, in a way, distribute power between people and allow some people to, to take away the rights of other people because that's what it is. Our final speaker for today's episode is Yasna Russo. Dr. Yasna Russo has been working in the fields of research and training for many years. Her special focus is the further development of participatory and survivor-controlled research approaches. She is co-editor of Searching for Rose Garden, Challenging Psychiatry, Fostering Mad Studies. Earlier this year, and in collaboration with Stephanie Woolley, she published the article The Implementation of the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities More Than Just Another Reform of Psychiatry, which is the basis of our talk. So when we talk about human rights and mental health, we often speak about a shift of paradigm. Um, and could you explain to us what that means so paradigm refers to a set of assumptions concepts values and practices that constitute a way of viewing reality you can also call it a model or a pattern so what we have in psychiatry is the so-called biomedical paradigm meaning that the dominant view of mental health problems, challenges, whatever people bring into psychiatric services, whatever they come with, the medical paradigm places the problems within bodies and minds of people who enter the system and also treats those problems in that way. I mean, this is how they are, they are located within, I'm saying bodies and minds as opposed to life of individuals. I think it's, it's slightly different. But like the biomedical paradigm refers to this, okay, if I'm honest, I call it a belief system because <laughs> that, uh, that the, the problems of, of life, of living, everything that we experience can be solved by the way of inter, in, intervening in, um, by the virtue of, of medical intervention. That is the dominant paradigm. And then we have this, uh, the Convention on Rights of People with Disabilities that also covers people with mental health problems, with psychiatric diagnosis, etc., which focuses on human rights. And there, there's a big gap between these two perspectives, if you like. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about paradigm shift in, in psychiatry and mental health, it means that the medical paradigm needs to be abandoned. There should be a shift, there should be a new way of looking at, at what is now diagnosed with mental illness or psychiatric disorder. There should be new concepts, new theories, another way of looking. I mean, paradigm shift means a need 
to change the way, the dominant way, how mental health problems or, as I say, what is diagnosed as mental illness is being looked at, is being approached and is being treated. When I think in terms of human rights, then, I mean, when we talk about human rights in psychiatry, we usually think of, of rights of, uh, how to say, to be physically safe, not to have things done against your will, not to be detained, uh, uh, detached from the rest of society, etc. There's also human rights that, that I personally find very important and many other people that is the right to, to name and to understand your own experiences. And if you can't name them or if you don't have a name, the right to have a process in which you can name what, what you are going through and in which you, you can understand it. So I think the, the diagnosis, the, the way it is done now, takes that right away from people. I'm speaking now for people who found that very damaging because it's the whole, you know, it's, it's not just a matter like somebody, somebody gives you, uh, somebody tells you what, what you have. It's not somebody, it's, it's a medical authority. Mm-hmm. What they tell you is an entry card to treatment. Many times this is not unwanted treatment. Without that diagnosis, you could not be subjected to such treatment. So they are all, so I'm speaking more for, for people. Who are, who are not happy with the whole procedure and, and who thinks that they should have, a, you know, a different, that they should have a right to understand what's going on and to have a professional who's going to help them understand that rather than put a medical label on, mm-hmm. um, on, on the experience and say, this, this is what you have mm-hmm. and this is how I'm going to treat it. There are many uh, self-organized projects of people for, to, uh, where there's... Uh, mutual support taking place outside of mental health systems. So you have uh, peer respites in US, there, there are many of those. I recently, uh, we completed one research project, we researched one, one such project in Germany that operates for more than 20 years. And they have uh, crisis rooms there where they can accommodate up to two persons at a time for about three months. And in this research project, we really try to, to see what, what is the, the approach they are taking, how, how people uh, understand crisis, and etc. And which we didn't find, not only did they work without diagnosis, but they also work without any definition of psychosocial crisis. They say we, each person needs to define for themselves what they need. So when they come here, we look at what's going on, what the person is able to tell us about it and what, what is needed. So there's no, so I think there are many such practices that are not recognized as practice, that are not seen as viable alternatives to what is in place, but there are those uh, practices. What I personally notice is that there is still this, you know, there's still an expertise imposed on, on people's lives. And mm-hmm. even if that expertise is not psychiatric expertise, but like this time coming from psychologists and probably coming closer to, to the issues at stake, mm. it's still a so-called third-person approach. I mean, still like for, for my understanding and for my, uh, you know, for what I aspire, I would really like to see people at, at the center I'm not against diagnosis. I'm against the direction of diagnosis because I think we, we diagnose all the time. And when I, but the, the, the question is, 
you know, what, what are we looking at? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For example, I mean, to, to make clear, I had, uh, I worked as a counselor in a, in a shelter for battered women for six years. Mm -hmm. And women were coming there with different problems. So of course you diagnose, but you don't diagnose the person. You don't look at, you don't focus on her state of mind and body, etc. You diagnose together what, what is needed, what's going to be the next step. Mm -hmm. What is so if they were diagnoses such as um, poverty, racism, violence, isolation, I think those would be would be helpful diagnoses to to help you on and see what what needs to be uh, addressed. I think it's a very difficult shift to make. I mean, also people who are psychiatrized very much. I mean, they are used to looking at what what's wrong with me. What can I do to improve? What what can I do to improve? It's it's very it's a foreign concept to look at the surrounding and to say what is wrong in my surrounding, what is wrong in my immediate surrounding, mm -hmm. what is making me feel uh, miserable, what what is causing me distress, mm -hmm. and and what needs to be done there. It, it's very unusual. It's it's an unusual mm -hmm. turn for for everybody. With these final thoughts. Our fifth episode has come to an end. If you enjoyed listening to the podcast, feel free to share it with friends, family and colleagues. Thank you and goodbye.